Again, this morning we're going to continue watching the development of the relationship between Solomon and his Shulamite. Now sometime following the honeymoon, the last couple of weeks we spent in chapter 4 through chapter 5 verse 1, observing uh, the glories of that beautiful moment, the very center of the love song that we have before us in the Song of Solomon. But before we get to uh, where we're heading this morning and in the afterglow, I want to take, a, take us in a bit of a different direction. One that has a corollary significance, however. And so the first place I want you to open with me this morning is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 3 through 10, where Jesus teaches on the topic of divorce. And you're thinking, well, why are we talking, why would you begin this topic on the topic of divorce? Well, because, the first, because what we're going to see for the first time, at least the first time that we get to see it, is conflict in the relationship with Solomon and his Shulamite. So in Matthew 19, 3, it says, Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, that's a very... General question, but very straightforward, for any reason at all, right? Any reason. Is it lawful? Notice they were setting out to what? Test him, right? You're seeking to test Jesus. He answered them, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus goes back to the Genesis 2, God's creation mandate, and of bringing, a, uh, bringing one man and one woman it's for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So we have a man, we have a woman, and the two become one flesh. And what God has joined together, he clearly says, let no man separate. For any reason at all, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let no man separate what God has brought together. So it's fairly clear that Jesus was indicating to them that from the beginning, the clear intention in God's creative order and design and of bringing one man and woman together in, in a one flesh union was intended to be for life. It was permanent. There was no reason given at all for a man or a woman, to be divorcing themselves. So they said in verse 7, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, then, th then why, Jesus, did Moses do it differently than what you're saying? He said to them in verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But notice, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. From the beginning. And Jesus goes back to the Genesis 2 passages. 
From the beginning, God intended it to be one woman, one man, joined together in a one flesh union that was permanent for life. That's the way it was intended from the beginning. And so Jesus says, and I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife, and then there's this word right here, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus here is giving an exception clause to the the norm that was Genesis 2, that it was a permanent sealed relationship between one man and one woman. There's no reason, lawful reason. What Moses did was because of the hardness of your hearts. Except for immorality. Except for, and this word right here in the Greek for immorality is the Greek word porneia. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Kind of like pornography, porneia. It's a word that, that clearly articulates a sin that's of a sexual nature. Sexual sin is an exception clause within marriage because it so violates the marriage bed that there is the only excuse that Jesus gives for the separating of what God brought together. So much so that if you divorce for any other reason, Jesus is saying here, and you marry someone else, you're going to be perpetually committing adultery because in God's eyes you're still married to that person. In heaven's economy, when you made a vow before God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're still married to that individual, lest they committed immorality, sexual sin. And so you go out, so you, you divorce for any other reason, and you marry another person. A woman marries a man, a man marries a woman, and you got divorced for some other reason than this. Jesus says you're causing them to commit adultery or you're in the process or you're living in adultery. You're in a perpetual state of adultery because you're having sex with another man or another woman who is not, from God's perspective, your spouse. It's pretty hard teaching, isn't it? Isn't it? Let's be real. Especially in a cult, our culture, a culture like ours, is extremely hard teaching. Now, some of you astute... Bible students are saying, yeah, but there is another exception to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, where it says that if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever abandons the believer, the unbeliever says to the believer, I'm sick and tired of you for whatever reason, and they abandon the believer and walk away, 1 Corinthians 7 says, let the unbelieving spouse go. You're no longer under bondage. Because you can't really hogtie them and then tie them to the back porch. It just doesn't work that way, Right? We might in our flesh like to do that. That might be like something we would like to do and then maybe beat them with the broom for being such a toad, but we can't do that. So the Christian isn't given permission to leave the unbeliever, but if the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. Those are the only two exceptions that we see in all of Scripture that give an out for a believer in marriage. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 7, first three verses, I believe it is, indicate clearly that if a believer were to divorce their spouse for some reason, any reason at all that's not related to this, it clearly articulates in 1 Corinthians 7 that they need to remain single until that spouse dies. Because in God's eyes, you're in a, you're in a covenant relationship till death parts you. 
It's pretty serious. And so the disciples, verse 10, said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. That standard's just way too high. It'd be better just not to marry if that's the case. And you've heard me say this before, and I say this with all sincerity. It's better to be single wishing you were married than being married wishing you were single. So if you're single, take that to heart and give due consideration to an individual for whom you may be considering marrying. And like I always say, and I will say this again, and ask this question, do they love Jesus Christ more than they love themselves? Because perhaps you find yourself single because you were married to somebody who was a selfish pig and all they wanted was their own way all the time and it led to foxes in your relationship and it destroyed it. Do you want to do that all over again? I think the clear answer is no. So, rather than doing the same thing and hoping for different outcomes, that's the definition of what? Insanity. Instead, this time, do it God's way. And make certain that you marry someone who truly loves Jesus Christ more than themselves because in marriage, what's, what happens in marriage? Is it inevitable? Con is conflict inevitable? It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Again, verse 10, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Again, indicating from their perspective just the level of difficulty in maintaining a harmonious relationship between two sinners. And the level of work needed to maintain a beautiful God-honoring marriage. Listen, most marriages are like junkyards. Have you ever driven driving down the highway? And all of a sudden, there's like this just beautiful junkyard right over here, right? All these beautiful old cars that are just glorious to gaze upon, right? No, they look like trash because they have been trashed out. The second law of thermodynamics has destroyed them utterly and they're in heaps of rust because that's the nature of things. It goes from perfection to disorder. It's the complete antithesis of evolution. Evolution says you go from complete disorder to beautiful order. This world and science says the complete opposite. But that's also true in relationships. And so, in keeping with my analogy, if you drive by a junkyard and you see those old, junked-out old cars that look like rust, and you're thinking, man, second law of thermodynamics, at work, right? But then you go over to your friend's house and you look in their garage and there's a 1954 Dodge Impala. And man, it is a beauty. What's your first thought? What's your first thought? Wow! Somebody put a lot of what? Work and effort into maintaining the beauty of this vehicle. Because you know intuitively they are supposed to look like the ones that are in the junkyard. And so if you want to maintain beauty in anything, what do you have to add to the system? Energy. Energy must be added to any system to keep it beautiful. And the same is true in relationships. 
Energy must be added to the system of relationships or they will end up just like that in the junkyard. They will look like a heap of trash, relationships do, and people divorce. The divorce rate within, within the church is heartbreaking because it's the mystery, that which reflects Christ and his bride. It's devastating. It hurts the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Severely, it hurts. This is a very important and significant topic within our culture today, and I'm sure those of you who are just hearing me say these things recognize this. Again, it's better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single, because it truly is for better, for worse. That's the proposition, but in our culture, now there's always the back door, isn't there? Now, if they commit adultery, the back door's open. Do you have to divorce on the committing of adultery? You don't have to. Jesus gives you an exception clause, though you can, and you're not in sin, and you're no longer bound. But you don't have to. You can go ahead and add tons of energy back into that system to try to regain trust and regain what was lost. And it can take years, but you can get there. And I know couples that have done that. And they have a beautiful God-honoring honoring relationship even to this day as a result of doing that. It can happen. Is it extremely difficult? Extremely. Extremely. But you're thinking, you know, but what if, what if my mother-in-law doesn't quite like me for some reason and always finds excuses for criticizing me? And I'm just getting tired of that. Is that a good reason? No. Well, what if your husband never learns to lift the lid when going to the bathroom and always forgets somehow to clean up his own mess? Ladies, would that be an excuse for perhaps saying enough's enough? I saw a few nods. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Guys, if your wife just sometimes always seems to struggle, you know that word for sin, struggle? I just struggle. Struggle to keep within like the clothing budget or something? I don't know, maybe that something like that might happen. Would that be an excuse for saying, enough's enough, I finally reached the end? No, of course not. For better, for worse. If they never learn to show appropriate appreciation, if they never learn the art of true lover's volley, if they never learn to make their bed or fold the laundry or pick up after themselves or take out the trash, etc., etc., ad nauseum, ad infinitum. It's a better for worse proposition. Make certain that you know whom you're marrying loves Jesus Christ more than themselves if, because if they're a selfish pig, they may very well fall into those categories and you're stuck to the glory of God. <laughs> Perpetually adding lots of energy into the system to make it work. He's your guy <laughs> and she's your gal till death parts you. And the reason I, again, wanted to start this morning in looking at this and taking a serious look at this is because thus far in the Song of Solomon, we've had a very idealistic view of what, of, of what this relationship has looked like, the way things should be. But this morning, we're going to get a dose of some realism, the way things can be. And we're going to take a brief reprieve, if you will, from the relational paradise that we've been feasting on since chapter 1. And we're going to see conflict in the relationship for the first time. Because all true love songs must learn to deal with conflict. All of them. Do you remember what was stated very clearly in chapter 2, verse 15 of the Song of Solomon? I'll show you. 
She was feeling somewhat insecure, and she says to Solomon, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are running the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Again, foxes in this context of their relationship would represent any kind of obstacles or temptations of sin that would be detrimental to the blooming of their relationship. Anything that might harm or destroy their relationship and love. Catch the little foxes that are ruining our relationship. And we saw in this passage that both Solomon and the Shulamite clearly were committed and had committed themselves to the ongoing hard work of adding the energy needed to catch and even kill little foxes that were trying to destroy their relationship. Which is good because this morning we're going to watch them do this very exercise in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Notice Song of Solomon 5, 2. She says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. So here we see at the beginning of verse 2 that the Shulamite's asleep. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. And that Solomon, her heart was awake. And then all of a sudden, it says, a voice. And immediately we know that the stage is set for conflict because she was awake and there's a rousing voice. Do any of you ever do well when you're kind of awoken from a night sleep with a loud voice? Honey, I need some this, some that, some of the other. How well does that go over? Not very well, usually. And as if that wasn't enough, not only is there a voice, there's a knocking. To add to the, um, the need to awaken a wife who's clearly asleep and slumbering. And then it seems almost as if to add some insult to injury, there's a little sweet talking added into this conversation. My sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, which I'm assuming that Solomon truly feels this way towards his bride. I think he clearly does. But the issue, the little fox here, is that Solomon doesn't seem to give one second of regard for the current state and condition of his wife, that she's sleeping Surely, um, of course, his head is drenched with dew, his locks are damp with the, with the dread of night. He's looking for a place rather late in the palace to lay his head for the night, and obviously he'd like to lay it with hers. His motives, I'm sure, were as pure as the driven snow, right? I'm, I'm sure. But his lack of attentiveness to his bride and her needs is clearly the little fox here. Hey, honey, sweetie poo, darling pie. Sweet girl of mine, I'm out here. Can you open the door? Ladies, how, how do you respond? No, you don't have to answer out loud. Just is it in, in a real strong affirmative? Oh, yes. I must awake from my sleep immediately and roll out of the beds and rush to the door. Typically in our flesh, we tend not to respond that way. Now, maybe you're a whole lot more like Jesus than I would be in that, in that situation, but perhaps not. Notice how she responded in verse 3. She said, I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Translation, don't bother me. 
I have a headache. Not tonight, go to your own room. Or something like, leave me alone, scram. I don't know, something that's the vernacular, perhaps. Right? If, and if you've been married for any time at all, you have a similar story such as this to tell, don't you? Harky, do you? Perhaps? Seth? Maybe once or twice? Maybe? Sean, I see you smiling over there. It happens. Charlie? <laughs> Never mind. Um, you see two perfect people, imperfect, excuse me, two imperfect people here meeting at a crossroads. And while his intentions were probably right, though very poorly timed with hints of selfishness all over it, her response, though, understood by most onlookers as ourselves, thinking that we probably would respond in the same way, they were words that were not carefully chosen words, were they? So Solomon's rudeness, his inattentiveness to the current needs and condition of his wife, which was sleep, her seeming harshness in the words of the pushing him away. I'd say there's a couple of little foxes there that could get into a vineyard and do some destruction. How about you? And this is just illustrative of any such little foxes of, of any kind. And this is just one said example of a multitude of many that could be the way little foxes find their ways into vineyards to destroy relationship between a husband and a wife. A little rudeness, a few words that are not carefully chosen. But notice how Solomon responds in verses 4 and 5. He said, My beloved, it says, My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Solomon chose not to respond out of frustration or anger, didn't he? It seems that he instead quickly realized the error of his ways as he slipped away in the night. I mean, he could have, you know, kicked on the door a little bit harder. He could have said something in extremely insulting and or more rude. And he could have responded in a way that would have escalated the situation to a full-bore fight, a conflict. Woman, you never let me in. But he didn't. He responded in a way that demonstrated he recognized the error of his way and a desire to make it right. Remember the art of the volley? Well, there's another art of the volley, and it's the volley of criticism. And the art of volleying critically back and forth will get a couple in trouble more quickly than you can imagine. And you're saying, no, pastor, I can't imagine because I've been there and I've done that. And what turned out and started off perhaps as a, as a molehill, a little rudeness, a molehill, a little harshness of words can turn into mountains of anger in just matters of seconds. And so we have to be wise 
we have to remember truth that, that's in the Scriptures, like James 3.6. We need to have these kinds of verses memorized in moments like this where we, where we remind ourselves from James 3.6 that the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue. And our inability to control this thing. It's like a fire, the world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And is set on fire by hell from the father of lies. All that's true, isn't it? And as I said before, the little children's poem that says, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Not only will words hurt you, they will and can crush you. They can and will devastate you and leave you with soul wounds that will take a lot of energy added to the system to overcome the negative, the negative impact of words wrongly spoken. And so when the context for conflict arises... Perhaps your husband's rudeness, your wife's rejections, and this will happen, remember, to choose your next steps and words wisely and with great caution. It might be something like having a game plan for how to fight fair or how to manage conflict rightly. Mentally be prepared, because you realize, if you haven't already, that you didn't marry Jesus Christ, the only perfect man. Okay, ladies? And your man is going to, from time to time, he is going to sin against you. Though he wished that he never had done that, he will. Choose your next steps and actions and words with great caution and wisdom, and you can keep it a molehill. Now, I could give another illustrative thing that turns the shoe on the other foot about husbands doing the exact same thing, so when the shoe fits, what? Wear it. Choose your next steps and words wisely and with caution and always give your true love the benefit of the doubt and assume the best. We always seem to want to assume the worst. Never say things that you know will, that you ultimately will live to regret later. And instead of biting their heads off, bite your tongue. And sometimes you have to bite really hardly. But I promise you, you will be glad that you did. And some other verses that we need to bring to remembrance in said situations like this, from the Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. Notice, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That is truth from God's Word. It doesn't say that you're happy in the moment. It says that you're capable and you've trained yourself to give a gentle answer in, in light of frustration or in, or in light of the rudeness of your husband or in light of the rejection of your wife or in light of whatever it might be, you've trained your heart and your mind to know that a gentle answer can assuage that. But it says a harsh word does what? It's just going to stir it up. It's going to stir it up. You're going to feel a little bit of righteous indignation, but all it's going to do is stir it up. Don't do it. Verse 2. I love verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. How many times have you told yourself or someone you know, listen, 
It's not oftentimes what you say, but what? How you say it. The tongue of the wise, how you say it, makes knowledge acceptable. So a husband's rude behavior doesn't just have to be accepted, like, oh, please be rude to me all the time. I love that. But how you communicate that your husband has some rude tendencies and bad mannerisms, such as not lifting a lid or leaving his socks always for you to pick up, etc., etc. And again, we could reverse these and go the other direction. If the shoe fits, wear it, right? But wisdom, the tongue of the wise, makes knowledge acceptable. And you can say very necessary things to help another person in their progress towards a more perfect union within the house to move that direction without stirring up anger. But notice the end of verse 2, but the mouth of fools just starts spouting, and what comes out is folly. Yeah, but you're mother, and yeah, but you're this, and oh, you always, you never. And it, 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 I'm telling you, you can go from a molehill to a mountain peak immediately. We've got to train ourselves to learn the wisdom that comes from God's Word, James 3.6. Proverbs 15, 1, 2, and notice Proverbs 15, 4. A soothing tongue is what? A tree of life. A tree of life. Mm. A word aptly spoken. Like apples of gold. Choose your next actions and words carefully and with wisdom because perversion in it crushes the spirit. Words will break, not only, uh, they, but they break bones, but they, words never hurt me. It's a lie. They crush the spirit of your spouse. This is all true, isn't it? Remember these things for the sake of your love song. Cherish your love song. Fight for it. Protect it. It's a reflection of Christ and His bride. Amen? So again, we see from verses 4 and 5 that Solomon responded well with what would be obviously referred to as nonverbal communication. In verse 4, my beloved extended his hand through the opening. It's as if he realized, I'm arousing her from sleep, and this, this isn't the right way to do this, so I'm going to quietly leave my calling card. Solomon knew that at some point in time she was going to have to wake up. He knew at some point she was going to have to unbolt the door. He knew that. And so he slipped his hand through the opening of the door. In verse 5, when she did get up and touched the bolt, it says that her hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh. Solomon knew that at some point she was going to get up and unlock that door and observe the, 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 the smell, the, the lovely smell of the liquid myrrh on her fingers because he wanted her heart and her mind to return immediately back to him. I would say that that's some pretty um, high, high cotton uh, response and reply from the song of, from Solomon himself. What do you think? That takes planning, that takes wisdom, and that takes execution as well. 
And it seems in our text from her reply that she responded in a very appropriate way. Notice the end of verse 4. What does it say? It says, And my feelings were aroused for him. Now, we don't know how much time has eclipsed from the, the, the calling, the loud voice, the knocking at the door, uh, when she finally responded and said what she said. We don't know how much time elapsed, but at some time in the, in the course of those things happening while she is now awake, it says that, that she has feelings that are now aroused for him. She's probably starting to feel a sense of regret for saying the things that she said to her husband. And sometimes if you leave enough room for people to slow down and think about what they've done, it can and should, if we sin against someone we love, it can and should lead to a place of feeling somewhat regretful. And so verse 5, she she does the very thing that she said she wasn't going to do. It says she arose to open to her beloved. And that's when she discovered that he left his calling card for her. Listen, if both you and your spouse lived with a mindset that little foxes weren't going to have a chance to destroy your vineyards, you would do well, wouldn't you? And so have a plan. Talk about your plan. Sweetheart, there's going to come a time I'm probably going to say something that I didn't mean to say, and it's going to come across as very rude and hurtful. I want you to know in advance that my heart is not to be rude or hurtful towards you. There must be something going on that's kind of driving this within my heart. So rather than responding and telling me how my mom never loved you or something, I'm making this up, my mom loved Lisa, but whatever it might be, Let's have a mechanism with each other, some kind of way where we can indicate to the other person that, hey, we need, to, we need to slow this down. That's a fox that could get into our relationship and it could lead to destruction. Let's not do that. And so you talk to each other and you come up with your game plan on how to be successful. Because if you can catch these little foxes when they first sneak into your garden, the amount of energy that's needed to add in there to, to overcome that, that hit is not nearly as great if you let it become a mountain. And then you may spend the rest of the night wishing you were sleeping, but instead you're trying to back yourself out of so many foolish and stupid things that you said. Notice again verses 4 and 5. After she discovers the parting gift of the myrrh on the handle bolt, after we see that her feelings are aroused for him. Notice the impact this has on her. Look at 6. I opened to my beloved. The very thing she said she wasn't going to do, she does. I opened to my beloved. But my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke seemingly remembering the words that he was speaking while at the door. The voice! I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. Verse 7, The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. And just like the Word of God says, his kind reply worked at turning away her frustration toward her husband. 
Did you see the very beginning of verse 6? I opened to my beloved, expecting and hoping to find Solomon there. And as I said previously, guys, listen, or gals, this shoe, shoe fits on both feet here. If you will sometimes just not respond like for like and leave a little room for the Lord, emotions can settle down. And the very thing that you were hoping for or expecting or longing for might end up becoming a reality if you just don't squash the thing to death in the meantime with unfruitful words. As a matter of fact, we see, we now see, that she has had a complete change of heart, even feeling remorse for what she had said earlier. And I think this is clearly what we would call the fruit of repentance, which leads, is clearly identified in this passage here, has led her to have a longing for something, a longing for reconciliation, a longing to be with her man. She realized that the words that she spoke were harsh, they weren't aptly timed. And now we see she is longing for reconciliation. So no sooner did this woman have a chance to change her heart and her mind, we see that she sets out to make things right with her husband. So if you find yourself in a place where perhaps you're rude husbands or women, you say some things and you turn your man aside for a period of time and you come to your senses quickly, don't just kick back and say, well, eventually I'll get to letting them know. No, pursue reconciliation. Keep short accounts. Have a heart that longs to be reconciled with your lover, with your mate. And we even see from verse 7 that in her pursuit of reconciliation that there were obstacles that she had to overcome, don't we? Notice verse 7 again. The watchmen who made the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. This clearly seems to represent the difficult obstacles that can be in the way of a, of a person who is in pursuit of rightful reconciliation. Obstacles that would weaken perhaps your desire or your interest to, to continue the pursuit and the process of reconciliation. There are so many obstacles that, that can jump up in your way of pursuing reconciliation. Push through them all as we see her doing. How many times have we given up on the hope of reconciliation because of so many oppressing and challenging obstacles? So many hurtful words in the past, they've said. But love keeps no record of wrongs. He said he's sorry a thousand times. Nothing's going to change. But love believes all things. She's turned me down so many times, I've lost count. Nothing's going to change. But love hopes all things. How many times can I keep overlooking such selfishness and self-centeredness? Love endures all things. He never wants to do what I like to do. She always has to have things her way. Love does not seek its own. She doesn't respect me. He doesn't care about me or love me. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. No matter the obstacles, remember what's stronger than them all is what? Love. As a husband and wife, we must 
push through any and every obstacle that stands in the way of our love song. We must be those together who fight that good fight of faith because in the end, true love never fails. Amen? It never fails. And when needed, remember, phone a friend. Phone a friend. Remember to rely on the help of those within your church family. We are here to bear each other's burdens and to hold each other accountable for walking in love according to the Word of God. Notice how she does this in a way in verse 8. Notice again verse 8. She, she says, I adjure you, and who she call, who's her phone a friend going to? To the daughters of Jerusalem. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved... So I'm hoping that you will help in this process if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him for I am lovesick. In other words, O daughters of Jerusalem, please help me locate my beloved and if you do, please tell him that I miss him dearly. When little foxes knock at your door, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because every true love song has to be committed to the catching and the killing of little foxes. Because if you're not actively involved in the killing of sin, it will be killing you. I promise. Every relationship must have added energy into that system. If you hope to be a Bruce and Patty Havens married 62 years in your 80s and to have a love song as they do, which is obvious to everybody, you had better be adding energy into your system. I promise you it works to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. We're going to have these two stand right up here after service. Just come ask them any question you would like. Now, I just made that up on the spot, but we could do that, and you should. You should find older couples that you see doing it right and doing it well, and you should go and sit them down, take them for lunch or dinner, and say, how did you do what you did? And you know what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you this story right here, and that they were successful at catching foxes and keeping them molehills and not allowing them to become mountains. And yes, some of them did become mountains. And yes, there were times when a lot of extra energy had to go into the system, but together they grew in wisdom. They grew in wisdom and they got better at that process and they grew in a capacity to keep mountains, molehills. And then they got to a capacity where they learned how they could read each other so well. Take them out. There's a lot of couples like that in this church. Do it. So if you'll remember these three principles, it will serve you well. Tate, you taking notes? Young man's about to get married on March 24th. Oh, she would never do anything that would be... Trust me. It'll happen. He's this loving man, but he will be rude eventually, I promise. Navelle's like, oh, he already has been. No, I didn't. I, she didn't say that. I did. These three things. Notice, number one. Number one, when offended, choose your actions and words wisely. Not if, but when you're offended. Your better half... When they do something rude, says something that's not so nice, and your feelings get all bent out of shape, and your emotions and your frustration and perhaps your anger starts to rise up, choose your next actions and words 
wisely. Remember the James 3.6. Remember Proverbs 15.1, that a kind word turns away wrath. Choose not to respond back in a like-for-like manner. Both of you be committed to this. Secondly, always long for reconciliation. Do everything in your ability to make things right and do it quickly. Push every obstacle aside that gets in your way to the path of reconciliation. And thirdly, if you need to, ask for help from your church. Phone a friend. Call a pastor. Call an elder. Do not be that person who shows up in the dark of the night when things are almost already over and then say, can you help me? I might could have helped you six months ago when things started going sour, but now six months later, things might be to the point where it's a point of no return. Now, I don't believe that. I think there's always a point of return. But man, convincing couples that have spirits that are broken because words really do crush and hurt, that's a whole different ballgame. And unfortunately, I've seen that it doesn't always work. Don't let that be you. Use the body of Christ. Use the community of faith the way it's intended to do. We are to carry and bear one another's burdens. Amen? And these can be, these can be relational burdens that you can have friends and within your church family that can help, can help you bur- carry and can help you walk out the principles of God's Word and hold you accountable to growth. Choose your actions and words wisely. Always long for reconciliation and ask for help from your church. Doesn't that seem awfully simple? Doesn't it seem like if you went to like marriage counseling somewhere out there, you're going to probably have a booklet that you go home with that's like this thick with the action steps that you need to take. But right here in God's Word in the Song of Solomon, it shows that when foxes come creeping into your relationship, there are some, some simple God-honoring principles, and I promise you that if you and your mate will commit yourselves to doing these as a plan of action for how to manage conflict within your relationship, you can and will be successful there to the glory of God. I promise you. I promise you, I've got 28 years of proof in that pudding. The proof's in the pudding. I've been eating that pudding for 28 years. It works. I promise. We're going to pick up, this is part one on conflict resolution. We're going to pick up here next week, and we're going to take conflict resolution all the way to the end of chapter 6. There's some other really glorious things that we can learn in that process. Let's pray together.